0: my psa to the world is to stick with education and and do what any one of us can do to make the world a better place for the reptiles that we love or the people that we care about
1: that are in this hobby welcome to from the ground up where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded sit back and have a beer with us well some of you are driving if you're driving keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show Hello, everyone. And I just almost dropped my pen on the intro and welcome to from the ground up podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. So I'm sorry, I missed last week. It's one of my only weeks that I've missed probably in the last three years or so. Um, It was just a super busy week and a bunch of things came up and blah, blah, blah. But I did have over uh, Matt Minnetola of Philly Herp. And we hung out and uh, on Wednesday or so, and we just talked about reptiles and had them in and showed, of, showed them a few corn snakes, showed them the gargoyle geckos and the crested geckos. So I did kind of have my fill of reptile talk uh, for the week, but um, so yeah, just wanted to give you an update on that and you know what was going on. Sorry, I, I missed you guys, but I'm coming back. So uh, portcitypythons.com, portcitypet.com, check it out. I am going to be putting up a new substrate mixture. so I've been working on, as you guys know, I've been using the isostrate kind of as a bioactive um, substrate and I've had a few people using that as well and so far we've had great results. but I have a few things that I want to tweak in order to make you know plants grow better in that medium and you know most of that is allowing more space for for the roots to dig down and and kind of more air to to allow those plants to grow. So that's what I am going to include in this next mixture, as well as a few elements that are going to make sure that the soil lasts longer. So so that's really what I'm working on right now. I'm hoping to have that on at the end of the week, as well as I will have pride gecko ledges. So yes, we will have rainbow gecko ledges. And uh, I'm, I'm so happy to bring these out. Sorry it took so long. Uh, I just had this idea in the beginning of the month and our friend Ben, who's a friend of the podcast, he actually printed these up in his 3D printer. And right now I'm I'm putting all the magnets on them and stuff like that. So they're going to be magnetic stick to the side of your enclosure and uh, just super, super cool uh, little gecko ledges in celebration of Pride Month, which is almost over. And hopefully I can get them out before it is completely over. So uh, if you guys want to keep out Keep an eye out for those. Um, I'm hoping somewhere between Wednesday and Friday, I'll have both of those items up. But uh, yeah, poorcitypythons.com. I also have a bunch of isopods and stuff like that available. But other than that, we have an awesome podcast. So, as you guys know, try to switch it up quite a bit. And this week's podcast is going to be a Chelonian podcast. We're going to talk some turtles and tortoises with Anthony Perleone, the senior director and vice president of the Turtle Room, as well as co host. Of the podcast, Anthony. Thank you so much for being here. How's it going? I'm I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's
0: it's weird to to be on a show talking to someone live for the first time when you know their voice so well already. Isn't that weird?
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's likewise because uh, I kind of like I was telling you before. I think the podcast was. Maybe one of the first reptile, not podcast, but video podcasts that I know of ever existing. A live video podcast weren't really a thing and you were doing it well before it was cool. I can't remember who I stole it from.
0: Reptile living room or something like that. I I have to give credit to someone, but someone had some people from the TTPG on their podcast and they were doing it a video podcast. And I took it and I brought it right to Steve Enders, who's um, my my partner with the Turtle Room, uh, the founder of the Turtle Room. And I said, listen, we need to do this. You're smart. I have ideas. This is my idea that I'm stealing from someone else. And you're going to be smart and make this happen. And that's, that's how we switched over. I think with the podcast, we did like nine episodes that were um, audio only, where we were like recording in a basement or at one point, we recorded like three episodes in a row, like sitting in a Toyota Tercel uh, off the highway because uh, John, the original co-host and my best friend is from New York City. So we like met off the highway and recorded in a in a car. Um, so the video podcast made more sense as something that we could do without having to drive to each
1: other. Those were the early days. I think it's also kind of essential just by I feel like you never really just have like another person talking to you. Like, like this is very one-on-one. I feel like your podcast is usually you have a group of people having a discussion. It's a little bit easier to, to vibe off each other that way.
0: Absolutely. But, but if you know me, I am like 100% in need of attention at all times. Um, I was a really like misbehaved youth, troubled youth. And it wasn't until like I grew tall enough to duck for doorways in homeroom that I didn't have to like act out anymore. So being on the podcast with like five people at a time, it could be really tough sometimes. I get really frustrated because I'm just like, I'm sitting on, an, on a on a comment
1: I want to make for a half hour. It's rough. <laughs> it's really rough. And I know no one can see right now because, quite frankly, I look taller than you, and I'm five seven yeah, in this uh, in video. Yeah, I don't know. i was just moving this chair up and down. But um, <laughs> I I didn't know that I'm doing research for this. I didn't know that you were a college basketball player.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that was about a hundred pounds ago. So (laughs) you, you, you gain a hundred, you lose an inch of height. That's what happens. (laughs) I used to be six, nine, I swear, but now I'm, I'm six, eight. So
1: wow. And you thats pretty cool. You played some, some basketball in Italy as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I played, um, uh, Rhode Island college in Providence. Um, it's a division three school, but a good division three school. We beat division one teams while I was there. And, um, After school, after basketball, totally like struggling with like, who am I? Like, I have no identity. Now when people ask me like, "Well, you're really tall. Do you play basketball? Like, well, I did. So really struggling with that. But I got to go over to Italy afterwards um, with a team of Americans. So we would play like the, we would play like exhibitions against the Italian professional teams and wear like uniforms that said America. Our uniforms didn't say USA, which bothered me. I wish they said USA, like classic, but it was really cool. Like we would have games and there'd be like Italians like chanting USA like we were the dream team and signing autographs and stuff like that. Like you guys don't know how bad we are. Like I know we just look good against this team we just played, but we are not good. That's okay though. We were good like, you know, for as compared to normal citizens, but not, you know, not like chant USA good so it was
1: so it was a cool experience for that reason you know no yeah that's that's amazing so kind of when did you get into turtles were you into turtles during this time yeah
0: you know it's it's funny i was i was a talented artist i'll give myself that credit and and i thought that was going to be my thing i wanted to be an art teacher but i was a talented artist all through grammar school high school college and that's what i went to college for don't tell anyone that that's my degrees in but like i made the turtle room logo which i'm proud of like i don't do much anymore but sometimes i'll do things here and there just um because like it's a big thing or something like like the turtle room logo that was a time for me to step up and try to find my art skills again but um if i was smart i mean i've been into turtles my entire life so like when i was my family i grew up in a family that we we didn't always have a lot my father worked a lot and then my parents got divorced and there wasn't just, there wasn't a lot of like, I grew up on welfare, like that whole, that whole thing. And my aunt used to watch me a lot. And she used to take me to catch turtles when I was like starting at like age five and we would go and catch turtles. And she wasn't a turtle person. Like my aunt was, and bless her heart. She actually, she passed away when I was like nine. So from five to nine, she used to take me to do this all the time. And she was like a really great mother figure to me. And then she passed away. So I don't know if it was like a total PTSD thing. We're the turtles were like a happier thing for me. I don't know. But, um, anyway, growing up, I always had turtles. I would always go catch turtles because it's something free to do. I don't need to go buy bait. Like if I'm even going fishing, which is a cheap thing to do, I don't have to have a lot of supplies. I don't, you don't really have to have anything and you can just go down and go and find turtles or snakes or whatever. But turtles were always my favorite. I would keep them all the time and I had them all the way through high school as pets. And I had them all the way, I had them, I got them again in college, like my sophomore year, I got some alligator snapping turtles that I had in my dorm. And I was just like, okay, RA, you're gonna tell me I can't have my snapping turtles? Like, all right. So I just kind of like punked my way into keeping them. Um, I did that a lot. I was, I was kind of a jerk, but always a nice person, but I wasn't scared to intimidate people when it came to letting me keep my turtles. But I never realized that that was something I could go to school for because academically art was always my thing. And no one ever even said to me, hey, you can go to college until I was six, nine and like dunking on people. And it's like, oh, wow, this, you know, you can go to college. Like there are some schools interested in you. What would you go to school for? I'm like, well, I really like my art teachers. I've always liked art. So that's what I went to school for. Now, in retrospect, I would go back for herpetology in a second. And that's something that I struggled with for a long time a long time. So if you're listening to these podcasts and you're like, I don't know what to do. um, I feel like, like I came out of school, I was college educated. I, I was a smart guy. Like I could hold my own in any college course if I wanted to. And this was something I was really interested in. So then I got frustrated. Like, why did I go to school for what I did? I wish I was a biologist and that's when i got together with steve and we started having these conversations like hey we're both young we've got decades ahead of us in this stuff what could we do to turn this into something bigger than ourselves i don't just want to be a guy selling a couple animals i don't just want to be a guy on turtle forum talking about what turtles he has like because at that point facebook wasn't really big for animal stuff and he agreed and, and he, you know, he's in education and we really bonded over that. And, you know, we started talking about just
1: things that we could do and that's how the turtle room was born. And now what, I mean, how do you take this just idea and how do you implement it? That's the cool part because there is no right or wrong way.
0: There is no, like, this is the vision and we stuck to it. There's parts of the vision that we stuck to, but, so the Turtle Room has just been around now for nine years. The podcast for seven and a half. We had no effing idea what we were doing at all, none. We just knew we want, so like our first website when, so Steve is the founder because he knows how to make a website. And then he's like, okay, what I'm gonna do is have people pay for memberships to be a part of the Turtle Room. And we were always really close, but he was like, you know pay me 50 bucks and you could be a part of this thing I'm making the turtle room. And I'm like, I'm not paying you 50 bucks. We've been friends for the whole time. Like I'm not, I'm not doing that. I don't have 50 bucks and I'm not paying you that. So I joined the turtle room, like officially joined the turtle room afterwards, but we were like working on this together from the beginning, which is really funny. Um, But it was like a club for breeders at the time. There was this thing called the turtle station that was ahead of us. And it was like a, a club of turtle dorks who who could hang out and i would call them that to their face if they were here and we were a group of turtle dorks and it was it was just like if you can't join them beat them sort of thing so we made our own and it was um it was just a place to sell animals but at that point we weren't breeding anything so like what are we even doing but it came together we would start we were because we weren't breeding animals as much. We could think a lot and and be creative about what we could provide to, the, hobby the culture that wasn't there, and we we came up with some good ideas over the years that I'm really proud of. Um,
1: but it just it morphed so quickly and it changed all the time, you know. And it seems like now it's a lot more conservation education minded. Yeah, yeah,
0: and I think education is the the biggest. So if you look at the the tagline, we had that from the beginning: education, conservation, survival. That was from the very beginning, um, and education first on purpose. At the time, I was a social worker. I was working in social work. It was just a job I got, um, and then I really excelled in and ended up getting promoted. And basically, I was a people person professionally, which I got burnt out later in later years. I'm sure we'll get to that at some point, but Steve. Being an educator, a teacher, um, that was something that we felt like we could really bring to the table and offer. You know, a lot of a lot of scientists and and researchers are not the most outgoing people people, for lack of a better term. So uh, we felt like that was something we could bring to the table that would be you know refreshing and needed and 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 useful, worthwhile for not only for us but for others as well. And,
1: yeah. how do you get comfortable enough? And I think a lot of people have this issue. It's like, uh, I don't know, it's hard to feel confident enough to put yourself on that. I want to say kind of pedestal to to put out content like that and try to educate. I mean, how do oh. you kind of get the confidence to do that? My con- the, So I started the YouTube channel, which now has
0: like 20,000 followers and our content, some of the old stuff is just absolute trash. It's so bad. And I'm sure you look at your stuff and, and think the same thing. But oh, yeah. my my thought with content always was that it's okay to be vulnerable and to put yourself out there to to have quantity over quality, I think is important. But the qual the quality that does have to be there is the information. So we have a lot of videos that have some pretty decent information, but really bad quality in terms of like video production. Um, So, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. So I think it was just kind of, I think just
1: realizing that was, was really important for me and, and for us. Yeah. And then how do you get, how do you get to the point where you're respected enough in the community to, I mean, you're in on all these projects, you're, you have all these partnerships, like looking at the turtle room, you have partnerships with all different kinds of uh, turtle, I guess, organizations, you could say.
0: Yeah, it, it happens over time, man. It really does. And and I think it, I think for us, the most important thing was building a team. I could only do so much by myself and we all bring something different to the table. And as we started to grow, that was the thing that you start to look for, right? Like, okay, we're not going to have a team of biologists. So what can you do? Can you write... Can, are you going to breed crazy species that our writers can then write a press release about to let people know that we hatched a cool species? Are you going to be able to make videos? Are you connected with whatever? Um, all of that sort of stuff. The same thing is like when you now we're now we're, we've been a nonprofit an official 501c3 based in Pennsylvania, but we're a federal 501c3. So the same thing that we're looking at as we build our board of directors, Right? What can you bring to the board? It's not just I want to hang out with my friends. It's what can you actually bring to this that's going to help us? Do you know people who can help us fundraise? Are you friends with a bunch of rich people? Are you uh, connected with you know top researchers? Are you a great writer who's got the time to do it? You know what? What do you have to bring to the table? Because if you're just passionate about animals, then I could find a whole Facebook full of people who are sending friend requests right now and are interested in the animals. Not that there's anything wrong with all these folks, but it's tough to figure out how things are going to go. So talk to me about what you can offer.
1: Yeah. And it's also one of those things where there's so many people in and out of the hobby. I don't know if it's that prevalent in turtles and tortoises. Um, it and happens. Snakes, people you know, coming and going, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So you never oh, yeah. know who exactly is super serious. So I'm sure... Having that background and looking for, you know, different, unique background is pretty important to know that they're going to stick around.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's just like, uh, you know, people ask all the time, like or or comment all the time, like, hey, man, I really want to be involved in Turtle Room. If you have if you haven't, you know, an opportunity open, I'd love to do something. And I say, OK, well, what can you do? And they say, well, what do you need me to do? I say, no, that's not like I'm here. You're courting me. You know, I'm the pretty girl at the bar and you're walking up to me right now. So, and I know that sounds ridiculous and pompous because I'm obviously not pretty and I'm just it's a joke. But at the same time, like I'm a busy guy. I have two young daughters. I uh, I work full time uh, managing a animal hospital and I only have a finite amount of people time outside of that. And you can ask my wife. I'm on my phone like all night because I've been waiting all day to get to my text and everything. So, you know, if you're interested, then it's going to take a little bit of Flirtation, you coming up to me, me kicking something back, you coming back to me two weeks after us not talking and, you know, sending me another text like that type of dating type thing where, um, I'm going to eventually start to like you and then invite you in sort of thing, but it takes some persistence, I think. And then other times, like I'll just bring it to Steve and then, you know, he's usually really, really supportive, but if there's times where we're busy or, you know, somebody wants to join that, um, what they're doing doesn't really fall in line with what we're pushing right now because all of us have day jobs. None of us do this full time. Every single one of us is an unpaid volunteer, even though we have donations coming in and everything
1: like that. So what exactly, I mean, what do those donations go to? I mean, what do you guys put out and what do you put money towards? Uh, so it's lots of stuff. Do you, can you bring up photos while I
0: talk? Can we do that? Okay, so so fo- just so everyone knows I'm not organized, but I felt like if I was going to talk about my stuff, I should have photos just in case, especially because this is a reptile podcast that usually goes in a bunch of different directions. You may not be a turtle person if you're watching this, you're probably not. So I want to be able to make it a little more I don't know, easily digestible. So I could talk about something and you can see it, which I always wish when I'm listening to the snake podcast, I'm always wishing that I could see a picture of something. Cause I don't know.
1: Uh, yeah. I guess we part. take that for yeah. like, we take yeah. that for granted because we say whatever, whatever snake and we're talking about it. And yeah. some people may not know even what the hell it looks like. Yeah.
0: Just say carpets. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I'm thinking about like outdated <laughs> you really got adult films well. or something. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> that was okay hopefully people didn't hear that um so if (laughs) if you're in if you're in uh folder number three or folder number i'm sorry folder number six and seven sorry six and seven so you asked what some of the money goes to so in those folders those are um our in-situ conservation work so it's just a couple photos there but so this is in new jersey we do the um terrapin conservation initiative which you have the shirt on joe thank you so much for that for repping i really appreciate that man and uh this is just something that happened because chris and casey leone have a great relationship with new jersey fish and wildlife and i mean when you that's okay there's there's a dweeb i've seen him before uh with the t-shirt for the former name of the project but um man when like the first second week of june hits these things they're just waiting in the marsh. And they just come up all at the same time. They just start flooding this one road. And there's more Diamondbacks, uh, Diamondback Terrapins, malaclemy's Terrapin Terrapin than you could ever imagine. They're just everywhere. And these guys run around and I've helped them before. I'm on their permit, which is so cool. I can't get down there all the time, especially now with COVID. But um, it's just amazing what they're doing. And uh, that that right there, that photo, you see the, the syringe going into the... Um, soft part in the the rear, uh, in front of the rear leg. And that is uh, a microchip that's being implanted. So all these turtles that they encounter, they get microchipped and they wand them every time they catch one. And if it doesn't have a microchip, they give it one. And I mean, they have like hundreds and hundreds of microchips ready to go. And they've been putting so many, they'll find like 60 females in a day. And that's just what they can get their hands on. The road is long. So you know, if you come over here because there's three terrapins, then you're missing, se- you could be missing several down the road. So they're just up and down the whole time. And when it gets busy, they're, they're missing a ton of them. Um, but it's it's crazy cool. And if you go to the next folder, um, that's the, the wood turtles in Pennsylvania. So a lot of this stuff is happening in your neck of the woods. I know uh, South Jersey is closer to you than the Pennsylvania work is, I think, maybe. But yeah, uh, that, that's a picture of Steve checking out a wood turtle. Um, so this is in partnership with, um, Pennsylvania fish and boat commission. That's what they call their fish and wildlife, right? You know that already. And, um, that's what they're called. I have (laughs) no idea, man. I've only lived here for a little bit. (laughs) Nice. So that's the name of their, uh, their, you know, Fish and Wildlife Commission in Connecticut, here in Connecticut, we call it the DEEP, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, which is just corny. Um, But there's a wood turtle, like beautiful species that lives right here in the Northeast. And um, so we're not notching them. We're not um, microchipping them at all. Um, But we're taking detailed photos so we can see what we're, um, what we're encountering. And uh, that's also in partnership with Nafturg, which is part of TSA, the North American Freshwater Turtle Research Group. Nafturg. <laughs> um, but this stuff happens over time, man. You know, you meet somebody, and then you want to you want to show them that you're more than just the hobby side, which I think is important. But we we pride ourselves on on really being in the middle of that, uh, kind of straddling. The line and being on both sides the hobbyist and the conservationists um because those sides don't get along and uh, before we came on I was talking about our involvement in the Spangler eye uh, stud book group which is um
1: Spangler Can I go eye. back just for a second because I'm just really yeah. curious about the, yeah. the back Terrapin before we go on to like Spangler eye yeah no and, no problems awesome. And switching continents yeah. Um <laughs> I so so I feel like diamondback terrapins, especially in say, say, New Jersey, uh, I feel like, and being in PA, I always see probably at least once or twice a year a headline of some terrible human being getting caught with like 80 diamondback terrapins, bringing them into the pet trade. So I mean, what's the current conservation status of that species? And like, are those events in which, you know, say you're going there and micro tripping those animals? Is there some certain event that brings all these animals together, makes them easy to collect?
0: Yeah, that, that the egg laying, all the females come up. And if you went to the Hamburg reptile show over the past 10 years, you know, and, and they try, they try to crack down and and that sort of thing. But um, and I don't mean to speak poorly about Hamburg because it's a really important part of my own growth and and my love of of this stuff and, and my partnerships. Like a lot of those started and grew at, at Hamburg. I love it. Um, but at the same time, there's the ugly side to it. And I think that's one thing that we need to really be mindful of. Like if, if aliens were watching the US and they wanted to know about the reptile hobby, which why would they? But if they did, the first thing they would see is the classified ads and that's such a sad thing because the amount of people who just don't get it and you can tell um it's it's sad and that's i think that's the push when i see someone put a bunch of information down there you can tell that they care about the animal that they know what they have they bred it that sort of thing awesome but you can tell when somebody's a flipper you can tell when somebody took something from the wild you can tell and like it's just not a good look. It's a field collected, like you just you just got that or you just paid a person who just took that. So anyway, um, if you went to Hamburg, you would have seen a lot of female Diamondback Terrapins. And the reason is to, to get back to your point, the females all come up. It's almost like an arribada, which is like in South America when you have all of the sea turtles come up at the same time because predators can't eat all the eggs at the same time now that may not be why diamondback terrapins are doing it because believe me the crows and foxes and raccoons do a a number on their nests they come out during the day because they know those terrapins are coming up in the first second week of june they can just tell they're dialed in and that's a huge part of them surviving and multiplying um so that's that's why chris and casey's work is so important but yeah To your point, it's not just diamondback terrapins. Um, Dave Summers is one that that guy was selling um, Dave in PA, Dave in PA, he would go to New Jersey, take adults, get them to lay eggs for him, sell the hatchlings, sell the adults. And Sold so many over the years, and he would like ship them through the post office, like in an envelope, like crazy, like in a cereal box. He would ship the weirdest ways, and people would always talk about him, like that guy is so shady. And then a couple of years ago, he got caught, and now the past couple of years, that story keeps getting recirculated as the guy in New Jersey and Pennsylvania who was taking the diamondback terrapins. But you know, something for people to understand, and this is this is big. So I live in Connecticut. I specialize in mostly in, in exotic turtles, um, and tortoises, but, uh, mostly Asian species, because a lot of those species are really in need of conservation. Like a lot of the species I keep are extinct in the wild. Like this species hasn't been seen in the wild since 2013. This one hasn't, you know, was thought to be extinct for 80 years and then got rediscovered. And then went extinct again, functionally extinct. So Um, The Asian turtle crisis, which was first brought to us by Bill McCord, who's a huge name in in Asian turtle uh, research and has two species named after him. Um, He's been a great mentor and and is, is awesome, but he was the first one to bring uh, the Asian turtle crisis to light. And um, it's something that I really like was interested in, but right now that, has become a vacuum for turtles from all over the world. So like when I tell you right now, if you don't know this, but confiscations, huge confiscations are happening in the U.S. And that's only a fraction of what people are attempting to get out. But huge confiscations of our native turtles, eastern box turtles, diamondback, terrapins, map turtles of various species, uh, even three-toed box turtles, all of these species, spotted turtles are getting collected locally by people who just don't give a damn and they're being sold to asia overseas and they're being shipped out and the majority of these are not being found but there are are confiscations of 300 500 animals happening and you don't even hear about it because i know the people who get those confiscations so it's happening and people don't even know but but The box turtles that you grew up loving or the spotted turtles maybe that you grew up seeing, that sort of stuff, they're not going to be around forever. They're just not. You can't stop the people that are doing it.
1: So is this like uh, Asian foreign markets that are that have the demand for these animals? Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily
0: markets, because then you think of like the the animal markets, like where, where COVID supposedly. Um, yeah, I didn't mean it
1: that way. Sorry. Yeah, because those like are a big market. thing.
0: Those are a big thing too, and that that's how it started. But then once something gets rare, or if it has a desirable trait, like if the plastron can be ground up into a powder that could be used to make Jello, or can be used in tea or what have you to, to cure cancer, um, then, then it's going to be more desirable. Or if it's like golden, like albino turtles are, are bigger there or the golden coin turtle, Cora trifosciata. um, Those are, are really desirable species, but if something gets rare, then they want it. And, and with turtles, something that's really important to know is the Chinese, the Asian, and specifically the Chinese market drives the demand. So the, I'll tell you this quick story just to illustrate that point. The Kuangtung river turtle um, or the redneck pond turtle uh, is a very common species in the trade. So like 10 years ago, you can get one for like 40 bucks, a hatchling. And then all of a sudden in 2016, China decided they wanted them back. Now this is a species that is extinct in the wild in China, functionally extinct. You're not gonna find one. and. Um, they were basically gone there, but they they became really popular in the hobby and, and really easy to breed. They're a great species to keep. So they decided that they wanted some back for their farms. They were going to start farming them. The, the value of a hatchling Quangtong river turtle went up to $2,500 almost overnight. This is a $40 turtle. Hmm. This isn't a morph. This isn't anything. They didn't get more rare. Somebody just decided, I want these. Yeah, so there's some good pictures. The one in the middle with that male with the nice red, that picture right there, that's by Ben. I think that's Ben Anders' photo. Um, Really, really cool, cool species. So they smell horrible. They probably have the worst musk smell of anything when they're alarmed. But this species actually lays two nest holes. They dig with each leg and dig two holes and then lay, I'm like doing the motion, um, and they lay eggs in both holes and then cover it up so that a predator comes, finds one side of the nest thinks that they got all the eggs and leaves and leaves half the eggs to incubate and hatch. So really cool. Um, but yeah, so they went from $40 to $2,500 almost overnight. And guess what? They're like $30 now for hatchlings. So it just goes to show you that how that that Chinese market uh, drives the demand and, and kind of drives what's happening here. Um, and they want North American turtles, they want, all the box turtles from Canada down to Mexico, they want all the different box turtle variants and and species and subspecies that they are, and they'll pay top dollar. And, and I think when you had Greg on, uh, from Greg's turtle Haven, who's um, awesome, by the way, he, um, he talked about people contacting him about alligator snapping turtles. Like, where'd you find that? Like none of your business Um, because you know, and people do it all the time. I get contacted all the time, just because I have like, I make turtle posts on Facebook.
1: And do you think that's any different than any other reptile? Do you think there's more, uh, there's more of that going on in the turtle world? I I can't
0: say, I can't say. Um, I feel like it is, but I'm, I'm immersed in this stuff, you know? So it's tough. And and that's part of the reason why I like to listen to the other reptile podcasts. There's so many similarities and there's so many things that we can learn. Um, A lot of us just get tunnel vision. We're living in our own world, which is by the way, sidebar why i really appreciate your show because you're willing to branch out and i think that's a good thing like listen you have a weekly show you need to fill a lot of time and have a lot of shows so and it makes sense to have guests and you always do a good job of asking questions and letting the host go so i was excited for that but um you know a lot of people don't do that so even even us and i had a show a couple months ago where i said you know i talked about reptile podcasts, and i said you know guys What do you think about us talking a little more about some other reptiles? Because Chris Leone, uh, my co-host, has a lot of knowledge of other reptiles. And, you know, I've been um, into other reptiles. The first reptiles I bred were bearded dragons. Like I have experience with other stuff. You just wouldn't really know it. Um, And I got like, it wasn't good. I threw myself to the wolves. People were not happy. (laughs) If I want to listen, if I want to hear about other reptiles, I'll go listen to a podcast about other reptiles. Like, stick to what you know. But it's funny because you asked me about, like, how do you put yourself out there? One of the things I had to tell myself at the beginning is, Anthony, it's cool. You don't know everything. Like, that's Mm -hmm. fine. Your job is to be the facilitator. Right. And I think you do a good job of that. Like, your job is to get the guests and to feed them good questions and to have a good base of knowledge yourself. But it's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that. It's okay to say, um, here's where I would look for the answer or, you know, just don't, don't be phony. You know, don't try to act like you have the answer to everything when you don't. And I try to do that, although I am human and I'm sure I've already lied on this podcast
1: by accident, but, um, yeah, I don't even remember what I was talking about or why I went. No, I think, I, yeah, I think you, people are afraid not to see meds an uh, expert at all times. Yeah. And none of us are. And that's yeah. just a fact. And even in snakes, uh, I do not know much, you know, there's th- over 3000 species. There's only, it's right. only so much you can know and keep and do all that stuff.
0: Right. That's something that I think is re- a really interesting point too, because with turtles and tortoises, it's like 346 or something, different taxa or, or what have you. Like that's, that's a small number We're like, I, I know the scientific name of most of the turtles and tortoises in the world, which isn't really saying much, but you could never do that with snakes because there's so many. And that changes like the dynamic of, of what you're doing because there's only so many we can talk about. Um, and I feel like the more focused and experienced you get in this, the more you get specialized in particular areas, like a, like a subset, like last time you had, um, um, Dominique, Dominique on, and she's doing green trees, which is great. And she was talking about like green tree pythons and how that has like a, a a subset of, you know, just reptiles in general is such a niche thing in society. But then you have the snake people and the turtle people, and it gets broken down again. And then the snake people get broken down into all these different things. And the same thing happened with turtles. You have turtles and tortoises, and then you have these tortoises and those tortoises. And like, so um, it's really not important to, have a bunch of knowledge because you're not going to be an expert in all of those anyway. So the more knowledge you have, the more you just, you know, they, they joke on the uh, as reptiles with uh, Garrett Hartle all the time about focusing on, he always brings it back to the super dwarf retics, which is cool. Like, I don't mind because I know he's passionate about it. And I think it's a cool project um, as an outsider outside looking in, but it's, that's what ends up happening. He's super knowledgeable, but just when he talks about different issues in the world, it comes back to super dwarfs. Cause that's what he's so passionate about. And that's what happens to me. I talk about Spangler eye all the time.
1: Yeah. And you, I feel like you <clears throat> went to the, you went to the extreme and you put your knowledge in writing, which is something, it's like one yeah. thing for me to say, Hey, I had a podcast. Oh, I was kind of an idiot three years ago, but if it's in writing, it's it's legit. It's forever. So, uh, talk about uh, when you first got into writing. I know you did some articles first. I'm sure. And, yeah. And uh, how you, what your first book was.
0: Yeah. So I, I like, I like writing. It's fun, um, but I'm not. I'm, I'm not really good at keeping myself motivated. So me, a book that I wrote being pub- published is is probably my biggest triumph as a human being. I'm, I'm. I was telling you before we came on, and I've said this on the podcast before. The Enneagram is a personality uh, test that helps you have more self awareness, and then helps you work with other people. And that's something that I'm really big on um, in my professional life. And I'm a seven, which means I'm Michael Scott from The Office. So <laughs> I want to do the fun idea, and I could. To- I'm totally distracted by the fun idea. Somebody brings it to me, and I'm like, yes but where I struggle is organization and follow through personally, if I'm just being totally honest. Now I'm a, I'm a successful professional. I go to work every day, but like my people at work know the people I manage are more, are more organized than me. So I rely on them heavily to help me and I'm more of the idea person. So anyway, um, the book is really a growth thing for me it's some it means that i really accomplish something because i have all the ideas i read about the animals because they're important to me and it just worked out and i went to russ gurley who's the um he has living art publishing and he's published about I don't know probably 30 books on reptiles snake books he did one on uh I think Serpents in the Clouds is his uh is that's in the Boylands. Boylands? how do you by, pronounce
1: Yep Boylands Python okay. by uh, Ari Flegel Yeah I think
0: I think he did that book he did like a book called Lizard Man. He did, he's did like short books on like tarantulas and, and all sorts of cool stuff. But he, he published my book and it was something that he wanted to do for like a decade. And then I came to him and said, hey, I have an idea for a book. And he's like, I've had that idea for, for like 10 years. So let's do it. And um, it just worked out really well. And Russ is an amazing mentor. It was crazy because he was somebody who I met at the, uh, at Daytona in 2011. And it was like a dream come true just to meet him. His book, his, his book on turtles changed my life. So then to be able to write one for him and with him was incredible. Um, And it's a, it's a small book. So basically all you have to do in case you're wondering, you want to write a book, just read everything there is ever written on the species three times, and then start to regurgitate some of that information in a way that isn't plagiarizing totally give credit where it's due, and then add your own uh, examples and then consult anyone that you know who keeps the species, and then you have a book, a small book. So it's not that bad, right? I'm kind of being sarcastic, but that's, but that's yeah. totally—that's totally what the process was. Because because it's a genus, Geoimida which has the Vietnamese black-breasted leaf turtle and the Ryuku black-breasted leaf turtle from Okinawa, Japan. Um, those two species are part of this genus. They're the only two species in the genus. And there's not much written on them, not much research. So you breed them for a few years, you read what's out there, and then you start to form your own opinions. And it makes for a nice little book. Is it? It's not a huge triumph for me, it is, but it's, you know, it's it's a nice book.
1: Well, I think it is a huge triumph because anyone who's written a book before, I know no one has ever said it was easy. And they've all said it was, you know, it's an undertaking for sure. So, what um, as far as working with the species? I mean, how did you first get interested in them? Oh, it's or is so it, funny. It's the genus. It's so funny. Like, I didn't
0: want them. I didn't want them. Isn't that always how it goes? Like, this wasn't something where I'm like, oh man, one day I'm gonna keep them. They're so cool. I talk to people every single day who want Spanglerai and Japonica, and they say. And and I'm not, again, trying to sound pompous. It's just what I talk to people about. And people will contact me and and ask because my name on Facebook is Anthony Perleone and I'm the only Anthony Perleone in the world. And it says it right on the book. So people ask me about those species all the time. They want the species and I don't blame them because they're awesome. But when I was starting with them, I didn't. And there's a, um, a partner of mine with the Turtle Room, Ben Forrest, who's one of the most accomplished husbandry minds you'll ever, you'll never hear about. Um, And he likes to keep a low profile uh, for good reason, but he talked me into it basically. Um, And he said, listen, I've got these, think about them. I think they'd be great for you. Cause you know, I'll talk about, I want small species that could do well in my climate. You know, um, it gets cold and dry in the winter humid and kind of warm in the summer, but it's fleeting, you know, it's only half the year. So what species really fit to that? And um this was one that, that he recommended. And um I kept them. Can I help you? Oh good. My wife just found the star tortoise I was missing outside. <laughs> <laughs> Where was it? We'll Climbing up like up the fence. It Here's was off the alive, ground? Man. Yeah. It was off the ground oh, on the fence. Like Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Star Tortoise. I'm like, you gotta be <laughs> yeah. kidding me. I never put them outside, but I was like, you know what? Let's give them a little time outside. Some, some, cause it's been, it was 92 degrees here. Today. Super
1: hot today. Yeah. yeah. So
0: I put the star tortoises outside and I couldn't find out. I was like freaking out before the show. So there we go. <laughs> live action. My daughter comes up and is poking me and pointing.
1: What? Oh, God. Saying? Speaking of, speaking of live action, was that like the worst period ever to be a turtle dude during, uh, during the, the turtle man? Oh,
0: so bad. You're so saying. bad because because the dude was full of it. And as a turtle person, I could tell you. And let me tell you why. I know we're going down. I was. I, we had a whole thing we were talking about. And now we're off on a tangent, but that's okay. Oh, and it's
1: I knew that this day. was going to create a yeah. tangent, which is it. Yeah, of yeah that's talk. okay.
0: Yeah, that's okay. So that dude, like, I don't care. You're missing teeth. You're not that intelligent. That's fine. But like, if you <laughs> if you have some like innate ability to like feel or observe or whatever, awesome. But like. I've been catching snapping turtles my whole life and all he's catching is common snapping turtles. Big deal. Like you could have a better show with Greg who's catching alligator snapping turtles. He would go down and he would, every single time he go in the water and he would talk about how a snapping turtle could charge you. Like, I'm just telling you that's ridiculous. So if anyone tells you snapping turtle bit their foot while they were underwater or came after them or whatever, it's complete nonsense. Snapping turtles, Will not like I grab a big snapping turtle underwater. I'm underwater with the turtle and it doesn't do anything, it doesn't even react. It just kind of will try to swim away. The second you break the surface of the water as you're pulling the turtle up, it will immediately bring its head back and try to snap at you immediately. Mm -hmm. And that's where they get their reputation is how they act on land. You see them walking all awkwardly, right? Like an alligator, they kind of stand up and walk awkwardly. That's that's where they get their reputation. But in the water, they won't go near you. They're going to try to flee because they're they're not as awkward. Confidence. They they're they move faster in the water, so they don't have to fight. Why would it make sense? I'm three hundred fifty pounds. Why would it make sense for a huge forty pound snapping turtle to fight me? It wouldn't. You're going to end up being soup if I want you to be soup. So why would a snapping turtle
1: do that? Right? they Fight me. You want to fuck with you? <laughs> <laughs> it it just. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. So,
0: and that's just how they react. So if I see one, I will just jump in the water and not worry about it biting me until I need to get my fat ass out of the mud and back onto the bank so I could wrestle with it a little more because then that's when the fight actually starts, not in the water.
1: Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's why that guy is full of it he also he also like took a cotton mouth out of a pool in kentucky where cotton mouths don't exist which is always fun <laughs> right
0: like, yeah there was the whole thing about like being staged and they're putting animals places so that he can respond to it yeah because yeah. they act like he's like just known around the town and everyone just calls him like nobody's calling that guy to come in your house like, <laughs> i don't need you in my house going through my underwear drawer like,
1: no yeah i i would like to keep a distance from that man mm-hmm you
0: don't want me in your house. You definitely don't want that guy in your house. <laughs>
1: That's all I'm saying. So how did we get off on that? That was my fault. Um, but you, you've you also done some uh, reptiles uh, articles for, was it Reptiles Magazine? Yeah, I,
0: I've written for several magazines. Um, my favorite ones are when you write for foreign magazines, because then they, they'll they take what you write and turn it into a different language, which is really cool. So like when you can't speak German, but you've been published in German, that's really cool to me. Um, but, uh, so Radiata is the German magazine. That's really cool, but it's, it's just turtles and, and reptiles has another thing where it's kind of like an institution in my mind. When I think about it in terms of like today's world, it's, um, it's no surprise that it's just completely fallen off and there's nothing of course, also because the editor Russ case, Russ case passed away, um, a couple years ago, which was, which was really rough. Um, but several of us who wrote for reptiles when he passed away would reach out to the new person and just hear nothing back. So I've never heard back from someone at reptiles, even though I got the inside information on who I needed to contact and that sort of thing. So, um, but that was, that was a big moment for me. That, that cover that you had up is, um, was the first time that I wrote a story that became like the cover story for reptiles magazine, which to me was like a really big deal. Because if, you know, when I, when I first started reading reptiles magazine, you look in the back for like the ads, like if I met someone who had an ad in the back of reptiles magazine, I would have been like a schoolgirl meeting Taylor Swift. Like that's, that's the level I was at back then. So then to be like, I wrote the article that is on the cover of Reptiles, even though by that time it was fizzling a little bit. It went to like six issues a year and stuff like that. But I wrote for them for a few years. Um, three, I, I only wrote for them three times. But it was it was great. It was great.
1: And I and I write for other publications as well. Yeah, so. I think that's something that as a kid, when I was in pet stores, whether it be the local pet store and then eventually Petco's, PetSmart, all that yeah. thing, but the one thing you see at checkout is always those yeah. reptiles magazines and yeah. that's, you know, what you grew up, at least for me and my people, my age, that's what I grew up, you know, looking at or looking up to. I couldn't ever even dream of being in that. And it's a shame that there isn't yeah. that kind of platform that exists now. Um, I feel like now people create their own content, which is great, but there's no like gatekeeper telling me yeah. that I right. can or can't do this. So it's like, it doesn't have that, that level, you know, I wish, you know, you could put something into Reptiles magazine and then they elect it to be on the cover. Like there's, there's not much of that going on. And then also, I mean, something like you were uh, Chelonian personality of the year for the Reptile Report. Those uh, those awards were amazing. Um, I miss them. Coming, Yeah.
0: Everyone complained about those. Everyone. Because it's unfair and it's it's a person. It's either a popularity contest yeah. or it's the editors picking who they like most. Like everyone could have a a. a an argument against or or an argument for why it's stupid. I didn't think it was stupid at all. I think it's great. I think there's nothing wrong with a group of people wanting to build other people up. And I would have, and I always felt that way before, I won personality of the year, the, the editor's choice, the last year that they did it. And I was floored and I wanted to try to act humble, but like I was freaking out. I had no idea. I was actually at the airport at a bar near the airport waiting for some turtles to arrive at like, I don't know, 11 PM or something like that. Like just sitting there and my friend texted me, congratulations. I'm like, for what? I had no clue, no thought that that would ever happen. And it's the dumbest thing ever. They gave me a little trophy and my name spelled wrong on it. And it's (laughs) the proudest thing I own, (laughs) but it's, it's cool. And to be able to do that for somebody, I think is, is tremendous. Um, I mean, it is a popularity contest. So, like Chris Leone won for the reader's choice every single year that they had it. I think. Um, so is that beef now? I mean, do you guys no, have that beef? no, no, not at all. It's all love. It's all love. <laughs> and then I, I, can't do what he does. I don't keep the amount of animals. Although from the looks of things around here, I'm trying to get on that level. But um, he's got, he's got to have like a thousand animals, maybe more. Um, I have like 180, which is like nothing. It's it's so much, but it's nothing at the same time.
1: And I was mm-hmm. I was always blown away just that he keeps so many species outside and basically the same yeah. with that climate that I live in. Yeah. Uh, it blows my mind. Yeah, but I mean, when you think about it, like a lot, there's a lot of
0: species he keeps that it's too warm for him. Like I always joke and say, that, like the Pine Barrens, like South South Jersey is like North Florida. Like it basically <sighs> is. It's it's hot. Like it it barely freezes, and you know it's it's warm and animals can stand it like can withstand cold temperatures and a lot of them need it so he has blandings turtles and north american wood turtles that have done have produced less since he moved because and and his his theory which i agree with is that it's just not cold enough for them there
1: so and now i guess uh turn turn back to what we were talking about before cuz that's kind of how how my brain works so the show goes all over the place but uh spangleri yeah. we were we were talking before the show and we were talking about how you know my first experience with with this species in particular was at uh at the Denver Zoo and i saw it and i didn't know that there was honestly such an endearing i mean all turtles are kind of endearing in comparison to snakes to most people but this animal was just like adorable little thing with these giant eyes i mean what first caught your eye um or first how'd you start getting uh to work with them in captivity mostly i um i didn't
0: want to that's where we were at last when yeah we, yeah when <laughs> my daughter walked in yeah i didn't want to ben talked me into it and um i scraped my pennies together to buy a pair and i actually had steve um who i mentioned earlier he 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 helped me come up with half the money to buy them and we bought a pair, and then I bred them. Now, I, I didn't want to because I thought I was going to kill them. Like, they had this reputation for being very, very fragile. And, and they can be. Um, but they were imported in large numbers around the turn of the century, like around early 2000s, up until about 2004 is when it really started to, to trail off and they weren't being imported as much. And uh, those animals died a lot. Um, come to find out, uh, metronidazole helped a lot with them. Um, but in their acclimation, but really the key was, and I, I, always think of this conversation I had with Bill McCord where he says, you know, with Spangler, Eye, people would buy them in large numbers. Cause I have price lists in my book. People were buying them for like $8 and 50 cents. Like these are species, you know, those are turtles that are f- for an adult. Now it's 1500 people were buying them for eight bucks and they would buy a group because why, because you know, you're going to lose a couple at least. Right. So buy a group and then you buy them and they're small. And you look at that thing, right? You they're small, so you put them together, and then they all start dying until you have one left, and it survives. And then you buy a bunch more, and they all start dying one by one. It's like Friday the Thirteenth movie, like picking them off one by one until there's one left. And what does that tell you? Stop putting them in groups. Now people can do it. So that picture with the plants. That's uh, Scott Gillingwater who's in, he's a uh, naturalist uh, conservationist in um, Canada and he keeps Spangler eye and he keeps them like this huge planted enclosures, totally naturalistic, bioactive with lots of turtles together. So that's as natural as it gets. That's huge. They can hide from each other. That's one way to do it. If the animals are acclimated, I keep them individually because it's just easier, easier. So I built a, what I call Spangler eye apartment complex and it's 16, it's it's four levels, and then divided into four slots, and they get a foot by two feet for each adult. They're super small turtles. Most of them don't even reach four inches as adults. And um, they, they um, hang out there, live plants, uh, isopods, everything. They're, they're like a dart frog that's more hardy, especially when they're alone. When they're alone, they're great. Keep them alone, then you'll always find the eggs. They won't get eaten by other animals. The male's penises won't get bit by other animals. It's just easier that way. Lots of horror stories from people who keep them together. Now, Scott can do it well, that picture with the plants there, but for the most part, you keep them separately and they do really well. But, um, and, and they're just great. I bred them right away. I fell in love. It was the first endangered turtle that I ever produced. And from then on, that was it. Every year we'd produce some and I would trade them. And now, I don't know, we have like 35 Spangler Eye or something like that um, just because we, you know, keep trading for bloodlines. We traded with zoos and, and other hobbyists who um, who who produce them as well. And it's just great. And then we've had people give them to us because they bought some and didn't feel like they were giving them the best life. So let me send them there so that Anthony could breed them, that sort of thing.
1: So, Are these guys like some of the other... Um some of the other turtles that that kind of look like them, are they largely carnivorous or what do they eat? Yeah,
0: they're insectivorous mostly. Um, There's there's a lot of argument about that. Some people will say like they should eat nothing but invertebrates. I feed them a mixture. I think it really benefits them to eat some fruit. I think it really benefits them to eat some pellets. And then invertebrates are important. I think in the springtime, like in the springtime I wake up, like every time it's sprinkling, I'll wake up at 4 a.m., go out and grab hundreds of worms and just feed them until they're going to explode. Um, But the rest of the year, I feed them like once a week, super easy.
1: And temp wise, you said that it kind of works with your rooms.
0: Oh yeah, it's crazy. So in the winter they should be cooled. So you want them to be between 45 and 60 degrees in the winter. So just like leave them somewhere in the summer, they could be like up to 85. They don't need basking lights. They don't need UVB if the plants thrive they thrive. So you put them in with a bunch of plants, you spray the heck out of it, you put in isopods or or springtails or earthworms and they inhabit the enclosure and now they have food because they eat isopods and they eat worms. So it's incredible. It's this, it, they don't really need anything special. Um the only difficult thing is probably diet. And you know, they are a little bit like a gremlin in that you know, if you let them get up to 90 degrees, that's that could be bad, especially for prolonged periods. And they're not going to breed if you keep them warm all year. So people who breed other stuff and keep their room warm for the year, you're not going to have success with spengler unless you can cool them. And that's that's with most Asian turtles, though. They really benefit from that.
1: And were they particularly difficult to breed? And then also um, how many eggs are they laying?
0: They, they usually lay one egg. Um, I've seen a radiograph of a turtle that had four eggs inside of it, but two were about to be laid and two were from the next clutch on deck. You could see the difference in the calcification. Um, The most I've gotten out of a turtle is three, which is really unheard of. I don't know of that happening at all in the United States before, Um, but there's a rare locale that a couple people have in the United States that gets larger. Normally a Spangler is like 100, 150 grams but this locale gets up to like 350 grams. So it's like, I mean, these are small turtles, but um, these, this larger locale is three times the size. So um, they lay three eggs in a clutch, that larger locale that nobody wow. really has. A couple people have, yeah.
1: So I could imagine with that low fecundity, Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. it keeps them pretty rare. Yeah, it
0: does. And that that's something honestly that I look for. Like, okay, I'm in the North, I'm in Connecticut, the tax me to death state. And heat costs a lot of money and real estate costs a lot of money. And I'm going to need to keep the stuff, the stuff I keep a lot of it inside. So what's small and what is going to be important for me to work with for the long haul. So like I have spider tortoises as well, which are a really cool species, one egg at a time. So that, that species will never get popular, common, common, I should say. And um, just like Spangler-I, um th- the eggs are tough to hatch. So um, that's kind of the deal with that. But if you go back to the Spangler-I, uh for a moment, those photos, there's a couple pictures there of the Japanese, the, the Ryuku, black-breasted leaf turtle, or Japanese wood turtle, those two over there, those are two of the most... That's that is one of the most uh, like attractive species you'll see it's just so cool maybe it's just the turtle guy in me talking no um, i
1: mean anyone anyone can see that i mean that right? thing is like blaze orange
0: right and you see the other one the the subadult like that's crazy right am i am i just saying that as a turtle person no
1: no no. it's okay. insane good good okay
0: <laughs> um that species has been a national monument a natural national monument in Japan since 1975 June 26, 1975. Who's keeping track? And um, so they never got left. They never were really brought out of Japan legally. So no zoos have that species. And people all the time will come to me and say, Anthony, Anthony, I want to work with this, with, with Japonica, like for conservation, they're a rare species they are endangered. I want to do my part to help. And I'm like, I try to be supportive, but in the back of my mind. So this is why ignorance is bliss because, the more you get into it, you get to learn the real story over time. Like that, Japan's never taking these back. There's there's not going to be a conservation side to this unless you want to argue, you know, breeding these will reduce the need for smuggling them in the future. But these don't get smuggled in very often either. Um, but I do think that it's a good educational project for that reason. I think they're great. And I think all hobbyists should know about this species and why it's important and the story behind them. Because breeding a rare endangered animal doesn't mean you're doing conservation work. Conservation is complicated. Um, I did a talk, if you go into the turtle ed folder, I did a talk at um, the TTPG conference and they they had me do the um, keynote speech, which I was shaking in my boots when I Googled what keynote speech meant because I didn't know. That like like that's the first speech of the of the conference and you're supposed to like set the tone for what the conference is supposed to be. I was literally peeing my pants like not figuratively, like literally peeing my pants. Um, and uh, the talk I decided to do because of what the conference is it's on captive breeding was uh, was called education versus conservation right? And that's actually the title of the book that I'm working on that I may never publish, but um, it's that first one that says great, pet, great pets, the green. Yeah. So that's that's um, I was talking about Reeves turtles there and just talking about the importance of like people understanding the nuance involved in in the animal hobby. Um, we all are self-serving like <clears throat> I like keeping animals. I have since I was five years old. I'm still that five year old kid that sees something cool and says, Mom, can we keep it? Except now, mom is Shannon, my wife. Um, but, you know, the more that we understand these things and we can have some self-awareness and, and own the fact that that's what we want, the more that we could be prepared to fight for what we believe in and fight for what we care about. Um, and that's why I get so frustrated by the classifieds because the classifieds are gonna be the reason why in 10, 15, 20, 30 years, we're not gonna be able to keep a lot of stuff anymore. That's my personal belief. So um, this talk was basically just, hey, conservation is complicated. Stop using it as your goal. Um, Like what's happening with the Terrapins in New Jersey, that's conservation. It's really cool that the Turtle Room is able to do that. I'm not doing that. I didn't make that happen. I take no credit for that, but I'm really excited to be affiliated with it. But I couldn't do that. I can't. Um, What I can do because it's more of like a low hanging fruit is education. Anyone can educate someone. Anyone can go out and find a person who, who knows less and teach them something. Anyone can find a kid who's scared of snakes or grabs box turtles and throws them in you know, uh, death bowls to, to live a miserable life. Anyone could find someone like that and teach them something in a, in a tactful way. And I think the people that could figure out a way to do that and use social media and different platforms to educate people are doing way more than the people that are going after conservation. Because any real, true, great conservationist will tell you that they question a lot of what they're doing and they they struggle with the bureaucracy of, of society and how they're not allowed to do this. But if, if we could, then this would be better and we'd be able to save this species um it sucks ignorance is really bliss because the more that you get into the conservation side the more you realize how complicated it is and how much goes into it so my PSA to the world is to stick with education and and do what any one of us can do to make the world a better place for for the reptiles that we love or you know the people that we care about that are in this hobby
1: so say you are someone in the hobby who has I mean, you have a rack of ball pythons or something like that. I mean, how do you, how do you get out there and educate, or even uh, say, you know, you're looking to add new animals? Um, how do you educate with even the animals that you do have? I love how you said looking to add new
0: animals because that's something I started to do when I was writing more. I would start to acquire animals that. So, so most of us acquire animals because we want to breed them, um, which is important. That's always part of it. And even when I came to this next realization, I still wanted to breed them. But I wanted to breed them and I wanted to experience them so that I could write about them and and help other people understand them. Um, that was something that was big to me. Um, and I think, again, anyone can be an educator. So if you have a rack of ball pythons, like ball pythons are awesome for education. I have, hi, honey. I have my three-year-old daughter with me, Madalena, whose hair is m- messed up. She just came over here and hi. say hi.
1: Hi.
0: Okay. Now go away. Um, <laughs> respectfully, I love you. Um, so... <laughs> I brought her to Harris and Wonderland, which is a reptile shop over here in Connecticut. And he he vends at, at Hamburg and White Plains and stuff like that. Such a great dude, great guy. And I came by. I wasn't planning on buying anything. He didn't care. I brought my daughter. She was two at the time. And I said, "Give me a ball python." Like I'm not a snake guy, but I have enough experience with ball pythons. We used to keep them in my apartment and in, in uh, college. John and I used to keep a bunch of stuff, including uh, ball pythons, and. Um, I knew it. Give me a ball python, a small one. And he gave me some morph, some kind of banana pastel nonsense. I don't know. Something I don't understand. And um, that's why it's nonsense. Sorry if anyone loves those. (laughs) It's not nonsense. It's just that I'm ignorant. Um, And uh, she held it and I have pictures of her with it. And once in a while, she'll tell me like, Ooh, daddy, I don't like snakes. And I pull up the photo every time. And I'm like, look at you. Look at your smile. You know, she's, she's three. So she doesn't remember things from six months ago. That could have been big moments for her. She's, you know, she's a mess. She's barely human, but um, that's a big moment for her. And that that ball python was huge for her. And I'm going to make sure it's huge for her because I'm keep sh- I'm going to keep showing her that photo until she's, you know, an adult and moves out. I'll still be showing it to her. But um, so again, education, man, anyone can do it. And that's a, a prime example. Like you could have one ball python and teach my kids something that could stick with her for the rest of her life. Maybe not, but it could. Snakes are really hated. My wife hates snakes and it, and I, it bothers me to my core. She wants to kill bugs when they're in the house, and I just lose my mind. And I just feel like I'm on a lonely island fighting with three women who just scream when they see a stink bug. although I do flush stink bugs because they're invasive. How dare you? They're, they're from they're from
1: Southeast Asia.
0: Did you know that nobody saw stink bugs when they were kids? Stink bugs weren't here until 1996,
1: although you're younger, so yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I always grew up with stink bugs. That's crazy. Oh man, you're well, I, was, I was born in '91, so
0: oh yeah, there you go. Stink bugs didn't come around until '96. And actually, I think they started in New Jersey. So I don't know where you were living when you were little, but New York. yeah, they were in your, they were in your neck of the woods, but those stink bugs, man, they're everywhere now. Those, those, uh, I think they're like brown, marginated brown, margined stink bugs or something. Maybe they're marginated. I can't remember. I get those two words mixed up from the marginated tortoise and the yellow margin box turtle.
1: Anyway, well, now we have, uh, our main hobby here is to squash the, uh, spotted flies. Oh, I don't know about those yet. That sounds yeah. horrible. Yeah. I mean, they're beautiful looking, like these red with uh and white and black polka dot animals. They're beautiful looking, uh yeah, but they're over in like agricultural lands messing yeah. everything up and then they've yeah. come over here to Philly and they're kind of all over the place. I could I can imagine it's a matter of time before they, you know, reach you. Oh, I'm sure.
0: It's horrible. Everything's a mess. Everything's invasive. Yep. And that goes, you know, like, okay, I know about turtles. The red ear slider is invasive. I'm going to care about that. Like, well, okay, we'll pick any one of a million different invasive things that are happening. Like what happens with invasive plants and stuff like that is just crazy. I have to get like a special landscaper at my animal hospital to take care of the sumac and Japanese knotweed. That's like a real issue. There's no way a red ear slider does as much damage as Japanese knotweed does to the environment. There's no way. Just saying.
1: Yeah, I I have the opportunity. Yeah, how beautiful is this thing? Really cool. I squashed like 15 of these on (laughs) there. You're on a walk in the spring and summer. You're so pretty. I'm so sorry. I have to do this to you. There's a, yeah, and there's signs all over the city like, spotter lanternfly, kill them all type of things. So uh, we're doing our part.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I talk about that all the time. Like, you get into this because you love animals, and then the more knowledge you get, it's like, kill them. (laughs) I love turtles. I love turtles. So please bring, bring me every animal that's, you know, hit by a car and has eggs falling out of it. And as well as its entrails, like that'd be great since I love turtles so much. It's it's uh, always fun,
1: especially like on the, on the turtle front. Well, not fun. It's sad. I go down, there's like a canal here and then you try to find a native species of anything. And it's almost impossible. There's a red-eared slider next to an Asian carp next, you know, like, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It is, it is really bad. And, you know, people talk about, they're definitely, they definitely take hold. I I don't know. There hasn't been a ton of research done on how invasive they actually are. Everyone throws it around, including myself. There was a preliminary study done like on how they outcompete the uh, European pond turtle, which is a lot like a lot of the species we have here in the U S but it's, it's, i would say it's like data insufficient that study um so pe- some people will scream at you that they're super invasive other people who know way more than i do say yeah maybe pump the brakes on that a little bit but i mean if i find them in the wild i remove them um, one of the best partnerships i made talk about education is a place here in connecticut called Dieter's water gardens that takes in red sliders that are found that i find or that like are surrendered or whatever or need rescuing. And I probably send 50 to 75 red sliders their way a year. And they're a pond place, so everyone who goes there has a pond. So they educate them, hey, you can have as many of these red slider turtles you want for free because they're illegal to sell in Connecticut. And you'll just keep coming back to us and bringing us your business because you love us because we give you free turtles. And you just have to make sure you put a fence around the pond. And, you know, it's been great because it's either that or euthanasia at this point because there's just so many of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's unfortunate the I think that's a, a good example of how I don't know the the pet the pet market there you know can go awry. And oh let me tell you about protect. that.
0: Let me tell you about that. Okay. Perfect example of why we are stupid consumers and people don't care about anything but making a dollar off of us. Okay. Readier sliders have a reputation for being super hardy. That's because people haven't taken care of them and they're like other turtles that can survive a lot. That's not a red ear slider trait. That's a turtle trait, okay? You can have a musk turtle, a mud turtle, a painted turtle. Painted turtles to me are way hardier than red ear sliders. And that's saying something because red ear sliders are hardy. But the reason that they're popular, do you know the reason why red ear sliders are popular? No. Okay, they are popular because they are bred in large numbers very easily in Louisiana. Not because they're good pets for your kids. And in in addition, then then the four-inch law comes into play in the 1970s, right? Because some politician's kid put a turtle in their mouth and got salmonella. Well, let me tell you something. If you eat dog excrement or put a leopard gecko in your mouth, you can catch something that way too, okay? But when that law, that four-inch law came into play, that federal four-inch law, then you could no longer sell turtles under four inches. Well, guess what turtle is the best candidate to stick around after that? The red ear slider that grows extremely fast. So they grow them to four inches. They don't even sex them. And then they send them up here and all around the US and the world to be sold as pets. And I go into Petco and see the red ear sliders and they're all females. I get so frustrated because they're going to grow to be the size of a dinner plate. And people buy them thinking they're not going to grow that much or thinking this is a hardy turtle. It's a great pet. It's not a great pet. It's it's a great turtle to be produced as cheaply as possible to be provided to you to make as much money off of you as possible. Because if we sell you a turtle, if we have a turtle that's $79.99, you're not going to buy it. So it works with the price point. And the same thing with the tortoises. We used to go to the Hamburg Reptile Show and we would have a $50 sulcata next to a $70 Herman's tortoise two hatchlings, both as cute as anything. And people again and again and again will come and buy handfuls of sulcatas knowing that they can grow to 200, 250, even 300 pounds and break through the foundation of your house, like literally through the concrete foundation of your house. Um, But people don't care because they lie to themselves, right? They make excuses to justify what they wanna do. Well. I'm young now. By the time it's getting big, I'm going to be on my own and I'm going to own a house. Okay. Guess what? I'll have fun rescuing that turtle from you in eight years with its, with its metabolic bone disease. Right? Yeah. Get a sulcata. It'll be fun. They said, I think that's the, <laughs> I think that's the quote on that meme. Like a meme yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, you know, that's the third largest species in of tortoise in the world. And they breed extremely readily. Um, you know, when you're a sulcata breeder, you hatch 5,000 sulcatas a year. And think about that: 300-pound tortoises, and you just hatch 5,000 of them. That's crazy. But the demand is there, and they're for sale in pet stores in Maine. Who in Maine? You can barely you can you can barely heat yourself in Maine. Who wants to heat a sulcata tortoise over the winter in Maine? The 10-month winter? That's absurd. It's absurd. So again, it's not what's, what's a good pet. It's what's good for me. Who's making a buck off of you. So I like to educate about that too. I think, you know, for a lot of people, ball pythons are a good pet because they stay relatively small. They're docile. They're not going to bite everyone and make them hate snakes. They're a great pet for that reason, from my outsider's perspective. And there's a lot of turtle species that get overlooked painted turtles. Um, Painted turtles are kept a lot. They're one of the most kept species, but it's usually people who are taking them from the wild because they have a huge range. Um, yeah, but there's a lot of options out there. So I do a lot of uh, consulting with people, like like unofficial consulting, and people who ask me about turtles and trying to teach them what species is the best to keep as a pet.
1: Yeah, and I even last year I was at the the Italian market in Philly, which is in the middle of the city. There's and. Yeah. the there's someone selling, you know, red eared sliders and a little bowl with a little palm tree in them yep. in the summer sun all day. and um so is there any i mean, is there any reasonable I mean, something like a like a Greek tortoise or a Herman's tortoise seem like pretty good pets. i mean, is there is there a decent alternative out there? Because I mean, yeah. turtles in general seem pretty damn difficult to be honest, especially the aquatic ones. they I are mean,
0: they are. They absolutely are. but you know, it depends. You know, I just, I have, um, so I have several species that just live outside year round. So I have a pond, I'm in Connecticut, so I'm a lot colder than you are, but you know, my pond, I have four species that live in there. I have several species that live outside Then like in the summer, like, like Chinese box turtles. I'm sorry. They live outside year round, except for the coldest part of the winter. So like in the late fall, when it starts to get really cold, I'll pull them and put them in my garage. So they'll stay basically frozen all winter, but not like you know, five degrees and like water, water gets in when the snow melts and then it freezes to, you know, 10 degrees and then they freeze and die. Um, So just to keep them from getting wet and then cold. Uh, But then, you know, three toed box turtles, super cheap species that actually needs to be rescued a lot, super inexpensive species um, that can survive in Connecticut year round. You just have to like in the fall, dig a deep trench and then fill it in with like mulch and dirt and stuff like that. And then, Maybe cover cover it with a tarp if you're so inclined. But my my the majority of my three toed box turtles survived here in the winter last year. And majority, I'm saying majority because I've acquired a couple more since then, not because several died. But um lots of species like that. And you know, uh Greek Greek tortoises, eastern herman's tortoises, they can survive out here year round. I know somebody who breeds them in upstate New York and does really well wow. with them, keeping them outside year round. And then there's stuff that does great inside year round. You know, I have I have all right this this is real talk I haven't even this is breaking news I haven't even brought this on my podcast my podcast which is called the podcast
1: yeah I like how you slip that in there sometimes I'll just
0: sometimes I'll talk about like a podcast I listen to and I'll be calling it a podcast because it's just so close um, <clears throat> I have a stink pot musk turtle which is a common musk turtle right have you heard of these they, they yep. live up here in the, in the Northeast and they get larger. So Bergman's rule is species get larger as they, as the species. If you have a locale that's more North Northern, it'll get larger than the Southern um, examples. And there's, it's not a hundred percent all the time, but it's a good rule of thumb, I think to follow um, from my experiences. So down in Florida, South Florida, there's a locale of, of, Stinkpot musk turtles, common musk turtles, where adult females—and I'm not kidding—are mature and laying eggs at two inches long. I'm not kidding. So they're laying these little jello jelly bean eggs that are like the size of my mechanical pencil eraser, right? And like it's it's legit. So um, I I had someone send me a few recently, and I'm I you know. I get the package at my, at work at the animal hospital. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to grab a radiograph real quick and just see, because I know there was females in there. So let me just see if anyone's gravid. Every female's gravid. And I'm talking the largest female weighs 56 grams, 56 grams. That's like a bite of my burger is 56 grams, like, like more than 56 grams. And the smallest one is 32 grams. And she's gravid with an egg, 32 32 grams. Like hatchling turtles come out at thirty-two grams.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make because us snake people, I mean, I of course they said come out at five grams and stuff like that. Yeah, but, me too. The Spangler I mean, eye
0: are don't f- the Spangler eye are like five to four to seven grams, four to eight grams as a Spangler eye. But there's some species that hatch out that are, you know, almost as large as that mud turtle that's that's laying eggs, which is just crazy. It's crazy. So two inches long. This the shell is two inches long, just to give you a, an idea. So when we talk we talk about a readier right slider that's 12 inches and literally weighs a hundred times what that stink bot does, how is that a good idea for someone to have as a pet in a in a small aquarium that has green water and smells like sulfur and brimstone? It's just the grossest thing you could ever bring into your house. Like, and that's and that's how we're trying to combat keep getting kids sick is to make readier sliders, the most common turtle, making, making pet smart, making their best way to make a dollar, be taking Russian tortoises from overseas and shipping them here to then be bought by a kid and have them walking around your kitchen. A wild animal from across the world walking around your kitchen right after being collected and then stored with a bunch of other wild animals in their own feces. That's the way that we combat sickness it just doesn't make any sense to me. And this is this is why these things are happening. And I think people just don't know that. So as much as I could be like a sarcastic jerk about it, it frustrates me. Um, but then you know, whose job is it then to to make sure that people know that that's why? So I tell that to almost everyone who, you know, people at work or people who want to get a turtle for their kids or whatever. What about a Russian tortoise? Like, oh, interesting, you should ask about them. They're great, but do you know why Russian tortoises are the animal you can buy at the store? Because people don't know that. Um, just like, you know, I don't know about certain fish or or other reptiles or birds that are available. I don't know which ones are wild caught, but I'm sure the ones at the pet store, there's a whole bunch of stories behind them that none of us know. So I think sharing that information really helps to make the world a better place for the animals and for the animal keeper.
1: Now, this is probably something that's probably beaten so many times in your circles yeah. But I mean, for me, I, I hear about it. Obviously, we know like the four inch turtle rule. We know about the whole salmonella thing. But really, what's the history behind that? What is the legitimate, I mean, threat of something like salmonella and turtles and stuff like that? I mean,
0: you can you can get E. coli from eating lettuce, you know, um, so. Part of it is the fact there's there's always going to be a war on exotics because it's not mainstream. I work in veterinary medicine. I work with nothing but animal people, and I'm a weirdo to animal people. And let me tell you something. Animal people are freaking weirdos themselves, people who love dogs and cats. They want to uh, anthropomorphize their animals and, and that sort of thing. So there's a disconnect there right? No one's ever going to take away dogs because a dog bites the mailman. That's a bad dog. That's just the way we look at it. But one snake kills a kid. And now nobody can keep snakes anymore. One, one kid, one, one child of a politician puts a small turtle in their mouth and gets salmonella. And now for for the next 40 years, you can't buy a turtle under four inches legally, um, according to, you know, for the pet trade anyway. Um, at least they have that loophole with education, which is nice because, but again, people are going to abuse it. That guy, like you talked about in the Italian market or, um, what have you, that guy's abusing it. And eventually, you know, they're just going to outlaw stuff potentially. I don't know, just a, just a microcosm of what it's like. People don't care. Um, and that represents all of us. So, you know, that guy sitting at the market who knows nothing about turtles and is just trying to make 20 bucks. He is, he is what I am. He's a turtle person, total opposite extra uh, spectrum sides of the spectrum, but that's the truth. So I need to do everything I can to make up for him and all the other people that are doing that. I guess it's a lot of pressure. And I talk about that all the time with turtles. Like we chose turtles. Turtles are one of, if not the most, maybe the second, like only behind the great apes to be, uh in terms of endangered um their endangered status uh the most the second most um endangered vertebrate group maybe maybe the first I think they're arguably they're up there with anything um so we chose them they didn't choose us the turtles that I tortured as a five six seven year old those I like to think that those were those meant something um and I think that it matters like these animals never asked us to be their advocates or to um, do what we do. so I think we need to do the best we can because their lives and and the success uh, the quality of life of the other animals is depends on on what we can teach people and what message we can share and stuff like that. I know it seems kind of soapboxy and like out there, but we have an opportunity to to make the world a better place for them. So that's just kind of how I look at it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I always, I always see things as far as turtles and tortoises go. Um, they're so, they're so used and abused in so many different yeah. ways. A um, lot of people as, have them. A lot of reptile people have them, and they have like one
0: in the corner. That like, yeah, oh yeah, that's the Sakata tortoise. He was raised poorly by the last keeper and I have them and I bring them to shows or whatever, like a lot of, like, not even like that. I mean,
1: uh, not even just in captivity. I mean, like overseas, whether they're uh, being used for food or whether uh, if you see, I forget what that picture was not too long ago when there was like some international bust of, of wildlife and there had to have been like thousands of these turtles or tortoises just packed, you know, and, stacked on top of each other and it just seems like uh they're just very taken advantage of uh, they are
0: yeah exploited because it's all from us so i'll give you two examples real quick 1939 clifford pope wrote a, a book um uh it's like the handbook of turtles and it was like the turtle book at the time really really good book um that i really like looking at and um one of the first sentences in the book i think if i recall it's right at the beginning of the book he says turtles are most are are most recognizable to us in their liquid form talking about turtle soup like at that point in 1939 people would would eat turtle soup so often they would the same way my kids eat chicken. And I don't even think they realize that it's chicken yet. Like we'll say, oh yeah, it's chicken. And then we'll serve them pork and say, oh, it's chicken. So they'll eat it. But like, I don't think they realize like a bird running around a chicken is actually the chicken they're eating. I don't think they made that connection yet. Um, So that was basically turtles for us at that point. And then fast forward to the zoology books in the 1950s through 70s. But even as, as recently as the 1970s, this guy, the guy who wrote the book on zoology, I'm forgetting his name, Um, compared them to cockroaches. They've been around for 200 million years unchanged. So to give you some perspective, T-Rex was around 65 million years ago. So turtles have been around unchanged for 200 million years. It's crazy how prehistoric turtles are. It's awesome. And only now are they dying. But in the 70s, his book on zoology that taught zoology to the future zookeepers, all the zookeepers that, that built the zoos that we grew up in, right? His book compared them to cockroaches, that they've been here forever and they're going to be here long after we're gone. Well, guess what? They're not and it's because of us. This whole sixth extinction is affecting so many different animals. You could talk about the the frogs in, you know, Costa Rica and and all sorts of different things and how important it is or the the island races of snakes or or the seabirds or what have you that are being affected by humans. Turtles are really really affected by humans because the ways that they're affected are just so complicated and have so many facets that like you can't even wrap your head around it. They just have no chance. A lot of them. Sorry. I went on a tangent.
1: No, no, you are totally fine. So, (laughs) so do you get out a lot? Are you able to go, uh, I guess herping for, for turtles very often?
0: Not as much as I'd like to No, I mean, I'm at the point now where I let the, the, the expert herpers do their thing. And then I'd like to go check in with them. Like every year I want to, I want to go to New Jersey once I want to go to Pennsylvania once I want to go to New York once I want to hit my Connecticut turtle spot at least once spot, a turtle spot, um, that sort of thing. And I'll go out and meet with people. Um, but for the most part, like I moved to my new house, it's almost been a year. It was July 4th last year that we moved in and it was really tough on my family. We were like living in a hotel. It was really tough on my animals. To move with 150 animals of any kind is tough. Turtles are really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, They need to settle in and the stress of that. So a lot of my stuff went to Chris Leone in New Jersey and then a couple friends up here in Connecticut. And it was just really tough. Um, this first year, I've been building my pond, um, building... I have three box turtle pens now. And then this house, one of the reasons we bought it is it has a separate basement that was part of an addition that you can only get to from outside. So like you're not walking through it to do your laundry or anything like that. So it could like smell like I fed them this morning. So it smells down there right now. I got to go clean up the food. Um, But my wife doesn't have to go in. She doesn't go in for like weeks at a time, which is great for me. I can just go have my space. Um, So setting up that room, building the pens securing my fence so that I don't lose tortoises under it cuz I give I give some of my we have a half acre and I give some of my tortoises they just walk the entire yard which is really cool you just get to you know interact with them acting like tortoises and having like free range
1: well now they're climbing fences so you got Yeah sure what the
0: hell you. Like oh this would be a good idea I'll just <laughs> put the star tortoises out it's like the third time I've ever put them out and I can't find that thing I can't believe she found it, but I knew it didn't get out. They're like really domed. I'm like, there's no way this thing snuck out anywhere. It's like, you know, a meatball the size of your chest going through a chain link fence. Like they're not the most agile thing. They're meant to blend in with the grass and not do much moving. So I knew we'd find it.
1: Do you have any issues with them like digging under? Or
0: no. So I don't like keep that? like sulcados and stuff like that. The box turtles I have to watch because they like to dig. But the the pond turtles, like uh, northern red bellies, western painteds, common map turtles, Pacific pond turtles, none of them really uh, are western pond turtles. None of them really dig that much. So um, really just keep an eye on the box turtles. And then I have one leopard tortoise that's really small. He's like an adult, but he's he's so when you grow tortoises in captivity, it's like, who knows what the heck they're going to look like and this is a rescue so when i say you i mean like you know when when a, a tortoise is grown in captivity they they come up jack, they come out jacked up like a lot like you can give them pretty good care and they could still come up jack come out jacked up if you're missing something important in their husbandry um a lot of people like to hate on other people like oh that's that's pyramided you need to blah 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 you know you know how social media is everyone's really quick to jump on people But it's actually tough to grow a tortoise really smooth. Um, Anyway, just giving people credit. I'm not not like a closet bad tortoise raiser or anything. But um, I have this one that just the way he came out, he's just very like elongated and flat for a leopard tortoise. And he just is an escape artist because he's like has longer limbs than he should for his size and is like super agile. He's like, he should be called a spider tortoise. (laughs) hey like spider-man see what i did there yeah
1: yeah Yeah, but he's not i i think it's always it's always crazy how you have these people who go to all these lengths to take care of their tortoises in captivity and then you look at a tortoise in the wild i mean particularly i'm thinking about like redfoots yeah and i'm like this thing is perfectly smooth i mean what is it is it just we haven't completely cracked the code yet
0: um I don't Some of that can be individual. Uh, I can't speak too much about red, foot tortoises. I mean, I see a ton of them. Some of the ones that come out of, you know, they're farm raised and then imported. Yeah. Okay. Farm raised. Like your my farm is this town. Okay. Um, and that's where I collect them. And then I call them farm raised. Uh, they're really smooth, but they're older specimens. Sometimes that can make them look really, really smooth. Um, you know, if a tortoise is fed the right diet and a, a red foot tortoise and it's raised in South Florida, it's going to look pretty smooth. My smoothest looking leopard tortoise was found wild in South Florida. So that's an African species for anyone who doesn't know. And it was found wild walking around in South Florida. And then the person who found it was like, yeah, you can have her, but 500 bucks. Yeah. Like- are you kidding me? <laughs> like, you're not even a turtle person. You come to me, I tell you what it is. I'm excited to take it and and give it a good life. And I and I have, and I love that tortoise. But it's like, man, you just found that thing walking.
1: Jeez. Yeah. You're like, it could very well have parasites or something weird that you don't necessarily want. But I mean, I guess it was worth it to you. I did it.
0: I mean, it was, you know, it was still like a third of the price that it should have been. And my and my wife loves our male leopard tortoise and he needed a girlfriend. Because I don't keep any every turtle has a job, and its job is to make baby turtles. So she loved this leopard tortoise that I took in as a rescue and it ended up being like a foster fail. And so now I keep leopard tortoises, which is which they're not, they're not the greatest pet species. They're not the greatest conservation-minded project to keep, but they're they're really pretty. And they're better—they're better pets than sulcatas. So I like to suggest them because you can get them. They're a couple of dollars more than a sulcata, but they're a good pet. They're personable. If you have an outdoor space for them in the warm months, they're a great pet to keep.
1: So with all the animals that you're keeping in captivity, obviously the spangler eye, you're—you're you're breeding. But is your goal to breed all the other species that you keep, or other species? Okay.
0: Everything. Everything here is meant to be bred. So I don't have. And some people will, will disagree with me and that's fine. That's their, you know, you can do with your collection what you want. I'm not looking down on anyone who does things differently, but my favorite thing in the world, the reason I, and this is, I have the most beautiful family. I have a wonderful home. Like I told you, I I grew up, I did not have the best childhood. And to look at what my life is now, the fact that I can be, successful enough to to be this into a hobby and to be living it the way that I do is like a dream come true. This is beyond my wildest dreams. Um, so I'm very lucky to have, to have what I have. My family, my wife is incredible. My daughters are incredible. With that said, I wake up every morning and go to work because a turtle might lay eggs. It's just my thing. It's what I love. I don't know how to explain it without making me sound like a bad husband and dad. Um, I love my family. I love my time with them. I love sharing it with them. But it's just I'm obsessed. It's what it's what I love doing. So if I can, you know, this this has been an amazing time. I think like I specialize in turtles that lay just a couple eggs, one egg, two eggs at a clip. So I think right now I have something like 63 eggs or something like that. And it's really early. Like my season just started in, in mid-May. So I have several months to go. Like, I'm really excited about it. And it's to the, it's the point where like, I'm getting eggs almost every day, which is nothing compared to like Chris Leone, but it's, I'm on cloud nine. I'm on, and then, you know, I got eggs, eggs a couple days ago and then today, I, and I thought they weren't good, but I was really excited about the eggs. And I woke up this morning before work. It's like Monday. I'm dragging ass, and I'm not really feeling good about everything. And I look in the incubator, and those eggs are uh, starting to chalk, you know, on day three,
1: which is late. What is? What does that mean?
0: Uh, so, um, when you get a turtle egg, a lot of t- and all turtle eggs are different. Like a snapping turtle egg looks like a ping pong ball. Um, tortoise eggs are really hard shelled and and they'll just start to turn white when, when they're fertile. So if you look at like a clutch, you know, a week into incubation and you see most of them are white, and then there's a couple that are still like brownish or pinkish, those are infertile with these Asian turtles. When they start to, um, develop and they're fertile, they, they get a big white spot and then it turns into a band across the egg. So it's just like a huge strike, like clear, it's like a pregnancy test, clear as day, this egg is fertile, which is just the coolest thing ever. And usually with the species I keep, it happens the next day, it starts to happen. Usually, honestly, when I find the eggs, it's already started. Um, So I got these eggs right after she laid them, I was excited, but I didn't know it was right after she laid them at the time. And I started incubating them, it was the first, I've I've had this project for seven years and I've been waiting for them to lay. So she finally laid. I've been raising the male up from a hatchling for seven years. Um, I've had the female for like five years. So I was hoping he'd be ready earlier, but it took seven years. He finally mounted her in April. I got these eggs, so excited. They look pretty good. And I started incubating them. And then it's like day three and I'm like, God, I can't believe these are infertile. Like everything went right. I thought this was it. And um, just this morning, I'm like day three and a half, I guess. Um, three and a half days in this morning, I, I saw them start to the band, which was just like, oh my gosh, what a great, what a great Monday morning. Like I'm walking into work, like skipping like Dorothy and <sighs> and the wizard of Oz. It's just crazy. So, you know, that that's a sight when. I duck for the doorway walking in and skip at the same time.
1: <laughs> so it seems like there's a lot of drama involved in this whole process because obviously snakes, when they lay eggs, I know immediately what's fertile and what's not. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, you have super long incubation periods, right? I mean, in comparison to say some of our snakes. Some do. What's what's a corn snake incubation? How many days? About 60 days. Uh, that's, that's standard for some stuff.
0: Like spotted turtles, 55, 60 days. Sometimes quicker if they're warmer. Um, but yeah, Spangler eye is like 70 days at least. And I've had them go as long as like 125. The Denver Zoo has had them go as long as 135, is the longest I've heard. <laughs> um, but there's some species like Matamatas are really long incubation time if anyone ever has eggs, nobody breeds those really. Um, one, one person in the U S breeds Matamatus. So, so everything. US, are
1: this, yeah. I was about to say, I see them all the time. They're so all probably. wild caught.
0: Yeah. They're mm-hmm. they're all wild caught or, or, farmed, oh, that's shitty. or farmed from, yeah, from not a farm. Um, uh, there's certain tortoise species and things like that that could take up to a year, sometimes over a year. Like I'm thinking of some like South American stuff too.
1: Yeah, that always kind of weirded me out because I've heard of people like with certain tortoises that they are actually going through different, I mean, heats. They're going through different ranges and stuff like that, depending on time of year. So like the best thing to do with a spider tortoise egg
0: is to heat it up, then several, like four weeks later, cool it down for several weeks and then heat it up again. Like. So you have to have two incubators going and really pay attention to like when you're taking one from this. So two incubators from one species just to hatch them, not to get two different sexes. So it's it's a lot. But that's again. So I keep spider tortoises. I've been raising them for nine years and they're adults now and I've never gotten an egg yet. That's crazy. That's absurd. Um, But it's just the start. I was talking to Chris Leone, who's just starting to get some mating behavior out of his male radiated tortoise. That's 14 years old. He's he's raised it since since it was a hatchling and it's 14 years old now and it's just starting to mate. So it's it's a big commitment. And um, turtles and tortoises, from, from a keeper standpoint, they can be amazing, but they really suck in a lot of ways in terms of like what you have to put into it. Whether it's filtration or lighting or diet or, you know, the space that they require because they need a large footprint. They're not going up and down. They're not arboreal at all snake word um but they're (laughs) unless
1: they're in their backyard on the fence
0: right unless it's a star tortoise climbing my chain link fence apparently (laughs) i don't know those things it's like a meatball with little legs that thing can't do anything she's telling me it's climbing a fence my girls have imaginations could be worse
1: i feel like there is i mean there's two ways to take that as far as, obviously in the wild, it's really not advantageous to have that long of a mature, I mean, like to get to maturity. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that could happen in, in 10 years, obviously there's a lot of hazards, but also, I mean, in captivity, you have to be super, super patient, but also you're keeping out those people who are fly-by-nighters, who yeah. in snakes often we get, you can turn around a species in a couple of years, or I couldn't even imagine something like a gecko where maybe it may take a year and you see people produce a lot and then get out. And yeah. uh, so it keeps some of the like people who are also trying to make money off the species out of it. It seems
0: it's good and bad because people, because these animals will trade hands again and again and again and again and again, without ever even being able to get um, acclimated well to their situation. So it's, Pros and cons, but yeah, totally. I tell people all the time. People ask me about spider tortoises all the time too. And they're they're great. Um, they have a reputation for for being pet rocks because no matter what you do, whether you live in Florida or Connecticut, they sense it's like something with the barometric pressure. They just know when it's winter. Even if you keep them heated up and you try to spray them, they just know and they go down. They just, for six months, they don't do anything unless you put them in a bath and then feed them immediately after other than that, they'll just stay dug in for six months, which is crazy. But I think it's great. I get a I get a uh, an off season where I don't have to do much with them. I don't have to worry about UVB really because they're not coming out. I don't have to worry about food much. I'll feed them like every two weeks just to make sure they're alive. I'll weigh them to make sure they're not losing a bunch of weight. Like that's a pretty cool project to me. And then in the summer, they just take off like they're running around, which is so cool. And to me, that's really rewarding. And they respond a lot to your... To your husbandry, to me, that's like the best thing. Um, but a lot of people will just call them pet rocks because they don't give them a chance and then they end up changing hands a bunch before anyone even has a chance to have success with them. So, But everyone wants top dollar for them. So you're not gonna, you're never going to get those unless you pay at least $1,000 a piece for babies, like adults $2,000 all day long. And it stinks um, because people see them as bargaining chips. And when the only way to play is to pay a lot then you're not going to get out of it on the other end without getting your money back. So um, they're just, you know, there's a bunch of people who are flighty but are always asking what the animals are worth, um, which is unfortunate. I wish, I wish the only currency was animals you produced and you could just trade offspring with people. I I find myself doing three-way trades where I produce something, but I have to sell it to then, And I'll tell them, we'll pay this person because they have the animal I want. I don't even want the money. Just pay it over there where I'll have a a stack of money somewhere that's just sitting there waiting to just go to the next person who has whatever, because all I really want to do is just produce animals and then get more animals.
1: I think that's one of the biggest things I took away from say, looking at the early days of herpeticulture, reading uh, someone like Bill Love's book when he was talking about when he first got into it, he literally just went across the country going to snake people saying hey this is what i have that's what you have let's trade right like that's that sounds amazing that sounds like exactly where you know everyone's head and heart should be in the hobby but now that there's money involved it can get a little tricky
0: totally totally and that's what it becomes it because and there's certain species at the top uh, like the higher highest echelon species that you can only get if you pay to play and that's it so you got to sell a bunch of stuff and pinch your pennies to be able to buy into that stuff because it doesn't matter who you are or what project you have or what type of collaboration you have or whether you have the turtle room or whatever, or you built a name for yourself or whatever it is, you you have to pay to play. That's it. So it's unfortunate, but it's just part of it. And I mean, who am I to say that people should just be trading like that's they've worked hard and, and that's fine, but um, it's just kind of the, the way it works and it's unfortunate because then, Cassius king, and it shows in the classifieds. It shows that that's that's what it becomes, um and I think it makes us look bad. I'm sorry, now feel, we're there. I'm really preachy tonight. I'm really preachy. <laughs> I don't mean to be that way. I'm not normally like that, but just give me a. You see, this is this is why the, the guys the guys from the podcast are going to be watching this. You're like, see, Anthony, that's why we don't let you talk that much. Nah, to keep- man,
1: you, you gotta, you
0: gotta get your
1: opinions out while you can. Yeah. we got to keep a leash on this guy, man. <laughs> Is it in, in turtles? Are the people doing it full time? Because obviously in snakes, we have some, we have some hobbyists that are like very, very niche and they, they carve out their own little lane and they're able to make a living. Are there just uh, the people in turtles? Are they just doing like large scale farming, you know, out of a pond or something like that? or
0: Um, I'll answer it this way. The the amount of people that are truly doing it to, that are like making a decent living. And I suppose that's subjective. um, The amount of them that are just doing turtles all the time only and don't have a day job. There's probably as many of those as there are reptile YouTubers who are making a lot more money. It's tough. It's, it's a tough racket. There's not many. I only know, well, I guess I know, I don't know. I guess I know three people who I actually know. And then I know of some others who I don't know well enough to say, uh, do they actually have a side job? Is that all they do? But Chris Leone does Andrew Hermes at Arizona tortoise compound does um, Ben. So a few of those people who I mentioned already. but it you know it depends. Everyone's situation's different. Um, they're all not making like the same amount of money as the other, and they're all not living in the same area. Like um, one of them lives in like one of the cheapest places to live in all of the U.S. So that helps when you're breeding turtles because you're selling them to people all over the country. So you sell to a top dollar do, um, a top dollar buyer in New York City, and you're living in, you know, Georgia or Tennessee, then you know the real estate dollar goes a lot further there so a two thousand dollar sale of your um chinese box turtle um hatchings for the year goes a lot further than it would if you were living up here in connecticut or in philly
1: yeah i mean that goes that goes for snakes as well and probably anything else like this it's a that was one of the first considerations when i was like maybe i want to make a living on animals and yeah It's like, wait, look at all the guys who make a living. Where do they live? Yeah. Absolute nowhere. Do I want to do that?
0: Yeah. I have fun talking to Greg about that. Like, you really want to live down here? There's a lot of rednecks down here. I'm like, yeah, I'll stay where I am. I'm good. (laughs) But I I had a realization years ago because all I wanted to do was get to Florida. Actually, there was a time where I just wanted to have a sulcata farm. That's all I wanted because I love that species and they're so cool. And I just wanted to breed them and let them roam free in my house in Florida or Georgia or wherever I was going to be. Um, It's not even the best place for Silcatus, but um, uh, somewhere along the line, I was talking to a Connecticut friend who was like, you know, we have the coolest turtle diversity up here in the Northeast, people from like all over the world, envy us, and it's not the worst thing ever. And I say, you know what? You're right. This is cool. I can be a turtle person up here. I don't have to be like a big time breeder. It could be a hobby and it could be fun. Like Chris will be the first one to tell you he does it for a living. He's so knowledgeable and he's such a personable guy, but he just hates it. He, he hates it. And and I don't mean to say that in a bad way. Like he doesn't love what he does or or love helping people. He does. He's very, he's a very compassionate, caring person, but it just, it takes all of the fun out of it. It changes it. Mm-hmm. So he's constantly looking for like the next best thing and like the big project. And it seems like stuff is always coming and going because it has to, because that's how he feeds his family and it stinks. And then you have people on the outside who are saying, oh, you keep this, you keep that, that was taken from the wild, blah, blah, blah. So he's constantly having to like justify what he's doing um, and needing to like grow a thick skin. And he's not that type of person When somebody says something to him, it really bothers him. So it's just a constant battle, like with people from the outside looking in saying, man, you, uh, you're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. And it just sucks because social media is such an important part of your business. I know you deal with it too. Like, Oh my gosh, YouTube! I had to grow a thick skin when I made our YouTube channel. Like the the, the things that people say, like you would never say that to my face. I would I literally even, rip you to shreds. I, I,
1: I even, even have like right now. people give me compliments, and then oh, like someone the other day was like, "Oh, I love this video. I love your cute little lisp, or whatever." It's like I didn't even know I had a fucking lisp, bro. What the hell. <laughs> The fuck are you talking about i
0: i had a video and so, like somebody commented how my nipples were hard I'm like
1: okay <laughs>
0: well they were so touche um you know just trying to bring some content to you and you know <laughs> yeah so thanks for that thanks a lot for that that was that's one that will stick with me forever Because it's true. But like, and like you said, like having the confidence to put yourself out there, that's enough to make you be like, you know what, maybe I don't need to do this anymore. Maybe that's why I stopped making as many YouTube videos subconsciously. I don't know, because someone made fun of my nipples.
1: (laughs) It's hard when you when you work hard on something or you put in time and you get nothing in return. Like, like well, we're not doing this for any financial reason, right? This why'd you is, say hard? Why'd you say hard so many times? Was that like a Freudian slip? we <laughs> were yeah, talking about I the know. nipples. Okay, I'm, I'm right. just thinking about your nipples this whole time now. Good.
0: I, I don't blame you, and you
1: wouldn't be the first.
0: If you,
1: <laughs> so like, you know, you just want to. We're we're trying to put good into the world. We're trying yeah. to to educate people about these animals. We're trying to just get our animals out there and stuff like that. And yeah, it's kind of hard, even when you're when you're producing animals or you you sell animals and do that kind of thing and people have their opinions and and i couldn't imagine doing it for a living i mean you yeah
0: it's there's no way now i know now i know how lucky i am that i don't i can go to work i can be the turtle guy i can take an x-ray when i need to and educate animal people who know more about veterinary medicine than i ever will in my life about turtles because it's such a niche thing in that world and I get to be an expert on something and come home and enjoy it when I have the time and not feel like I'm not going to be able to provide for my family when something bad happens. Like that's a lo- that's an added level of pressure. I freak out. And I, I was telling you about those eggs and waiting to see if they would band. If, if I wasn't sure if my family was going to eat, if they didn't band, like I can't imagine that type of pressure, you know?
1: Yeah. Greg said they aren't hard. They're pierced. Well, he would know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thanks greg Th- is that the first comment
1: did nobody comment do we have no viewers no yeah happened? there's there's comments oh I you just see you I don't see the chat you can you can see oh. it if you wanted to go to the youtube oh that's okay all right, that's all but right. um yeah it, it's super distracting so if you see me doing something i'm trying to like attend to the oh, cool to the chat cool 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 i like it but yeah i feel like uh somehow you were able to go like we said before, you were you were doing social work, but somehow yeah. you were still kind of able to get your foot in the door doing something kind of animal related. Yeah, so because I, think it's people.
0: I think it's people, man. If you if you have people skills, some sort of people skills or something you could bring to the table, you will be known. You know, like you're not the most knowledgeable snake person. I'm sorry to break it to you if you didn't know that. But I enjoy listening to your show because you bring something that's that's important to us and even though you're not the only podcast out there it's still important and yours is so is is different than other people right so you found your niche and that's the type of stuff i would talk to steve about finding our niche And my niche now is the people person. When there's an interpersonal conflict in the turtle world that involves my people, I'm always involved. And it's not because I'm trying to get in their business or anything. They just know I can go to Anthony. He's someone I trust. He won't go and tell the other person if I don't want him to. He'll give me some good advice. He'll diagnose somebody who's frustrating me. Like certain, not that I ever did any diagnoses or anything like that, but just saying like somebody's being frustrated. I'm like, you know, this person just sounds like a, I don't know, just... Sounds like a fill in the blank. We're like, oh my gosh, they're actually diagnosed with that. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's because it sounds like that. But um, I really like the social work stuff and I, I really did well in that. And then I really got burnt out and I lost my job. And so it was like back to the drawing board. What the hell am I going to do? At this point, all I have is the turtle room. But you know, it makes for a really good resume. Like, you know, senior director at that point of a non of a of a budding nonprofit that did something really cool. You go to sit down in a job interview and they're like, "Tell me about this." Like, well, I save the most endangered turtles and the animals in the world. Like, now maybe I'm tooting my horn, but that's what you're supposed to do in a job interview. But like, how cool is that, right? Like, what are you doing in your spare time? Play frisbee golf? Frolf? Is that a thing? like so great like i'm happy you do that but like i'm just not into that i don't want to go to and and i'm not antisocial. i'm a people person but i just i find this to be more important than anything else going on around me and it's probably just because i'm um i have like a obsessive personality and i'm like obsessed with it but it's just to me it's just more important so anyway i use my skills to land a job in the veterinary field there was a there was a uh a job working for a large 24-hour animal hospital being like their marketing. They basically need someone to be like the face of their hospital. So they they rely on referrals from other hospitals from around the area. So they have like 80 hospitals that refer to them for emergencies. They send stuff to their surgeon. They send stuff to their internist, um, to their cardiologist, stuff like that. These are board certified specialists. So doctors that became a doctor then were crazy enough to go to school for another three or four years and become a certified specialist do, you know, um, so I, um, got that job basically because of the turtle room. Well, first of all, social work, they asked me in the interview, how do you deal? How, how well do you think you deal with difficult people? And I said, I professionally deal with the most difficult people society has to offer on a daily basis. My specialty was mental health and substance use, um, disorders. Uh, Co-occurring basically everyone like 85% of my clients had both mental health and substance abuse And then they asked me like, well, how about social media? I'm like, well You know, my turtle page has 20,000 people and my instagram has 40,000 people and I helped, you know Set that up and build that And just talking about what we do for that and how we, you know Have people help us with that and kind of organize the entire thing and they were sitting in the interview like Who is this guy and honestly i'm no one i'm a guy with an art degree Who got a job in social work because i needed a job and then got promoted a couple times just i don't know because i'm tall or something or because i i don't know i don't know what it is um but um i i I did well in that area because i'm a people person uh i like to have fun with people but i can be serious but I, i got really burnt out and and um you know how funny is it that this silly turtle thing that was just kind of a side thing helped me get a job in the veterinary industry that I love. And now I run my own, I've been promoted a few times there. I run my own animal hospital. Now I'm the, I'm the manager and I also train new hires in the Northeast. So I go around the Northeast and talk about doing presentations. I do 17 hour long presentations and like I train like brain surgeons, like not kidding. on like, how vca animal hospitals do you know how we do business and stuff like that so it's really cool and it's all because of the turtles and um i guess looking back on it now it seems crazy but it's like it's amazing what you can do in 10 years if you stick with it
1: yeah yeah i mean that's amazing and i don't know if i've ever told anyone anyone this it's i also used my hobby in doing this to get the job that i have so it's Mm -hmm. like i not only did i have jobs I wasn't exactly in the field that I am right now, but I mean, I put my social media stuff on my resume as well as, as well as the fact that I have a Shopify website, you know, that's what I run Port City Pet through. So since I managed that Shopify website, I got a job managing someone else's Shopify website just because I'm into snakes and I just happened to do a thing. And here I have a job and, and I didn't even finish college. I dropped out my senior year. There you go. Um, so, yeah. And I have a, I have a job in which most people have college degrees. So right. you can, you can leverage yeah. things. I mean, especially this hobby. I mean, it is what you make of it. And that goes right. for probably anything else you're into.
0: Right. And I, I think we, t- we tend to put, put ourselves in a box where you think of certain things. Like when I was in college, then all of a sudden I wanted, like, like I came, became really close with the guy who owned the exotic reptile store nearby and that's where i got pets from and advice from and learned a lot from because the internet wasn't really big a big source of information on niche things yet and talking to him like john and i were going to open up like a franchise pet store under him now i look at that i'm like if i did that my life would be so miserable but you just you know you 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 don't know what doors can open until you just start pushing forward and if you keep and this is something that i believed at the very beginning and it's it couldn't have been more true. If you just focus on what you're passionate about and try to be good to other people, collaborative, and help where you can and be involved where you can and make a name for yourself and just stay the course and, and stay involved with good people who really mean well and want to build like you do, then the possibilities are endless. I mean, the, we, we have a conservation program in Africa like what the hell is that? Like that's crazy. We're just a we're just a couple of guys that got together and said, We 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 want to do more. And we got to know other people and the other people said, Hey, you could do more. And we're like, Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get you to see. Like it's just crazy how that how that happens and how how it grew so quickly. Turtle Room is nine years old and it's nothing like it looked in the beginning, nothing like we would have imagined it to look, but it's like It's just
1: crazy. We made it over two hours. Yeah, we did. That easy.
0: (laughs) We've never had a, I've never had a, I've never been on a podcast,
1: podcast that long. Really? Yeah.
0: Yep. Seven and a half years. Never been on one this long. So is there,
1: is there anything that we, uh, that we missed out on? I'm sure there is. I, I don't think so. No, there were just
0: some, some little things here or there, like if they came up, but. I think I think what we were just talking about is a nice place to leave off on it too. And and Absolutely. I know I know you ended always by saying, okay, how could people get in touch with you? So I'll beat you to it. <laughs>
1: go I'm, for such it. A good, I'm such a good listener. So I? how can people get in touch with you? <laughs> so um, I, I beat you to it.
0: I'm available uh, through the website. You can go to the turtle room and, and contact me there. It's my name, anthony.pierleone at the Now we change it to a org. Um, Or you can find me on Facebook. My name, Anthony Perleone. I'm the only one in the world um, because I have a weird name. And uh, yeah, I I love to talk turtles. If you have questions, let me know. If I can help, I will. Um, Basically, yeah, I just encourage you to, 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 you know, stick with it and um, reach out and talk to people because that's the best part, right? Are you the one that say, that always says if uh get into it for the animals stay for the people? Is that you? Who says definitely that? Definitely not, but I agree with that. <laughs> Is that somebody <laughs> said somebody on one of the podcasts says that?
1: I don't know why. Well, yeah, we we've, we've definitely talked about it, but yeah, uh, just during this whole covid thing, not even not having the interactions, I'm realizing that it's just as much of, you know, whether it's in-person interactions or, or different ways through social media and stuff like that. It's it all cohesive. Um, so yeah, it's a little disappointing not having that meeting new people and stuff totally. like that in person at reptile shows and stuff that i that I'm used to, or for you probably going out to, uh, go check out diamondback Terrapins at this time of the year or, or stuff like that. So,
0: yeah, I was as
1: crazy as this
0: is, I was supposed to go to China this year to do a talk. Ooh, I was supposed gosh. to go to Shanghai when the, when COVID first started happening. I'm like, oh gosh, where's Wuhan? Where's Wuhan province? And I look it up. I'm like, oh, this is this is not looking good for my trip to Shanghai. Not knowing how bad it would get. But yeah, that that was a little bit unfortunate. And supposed to go to Daytona this year. My wife's idea. Mm-hmm. We were going to go to Daytona. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a bummer, but you know, I'm the type of person I'll, 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 end with this. I'm the type of person who I I'm in the grocery store. I want to talk to people, but they never want to talk to me. Cause I'm, I look like a mean lumberjack when I'm just standing there. Something about my wife's face, everyone wants to talk to her and she doesn't want to talk to anybody. It's probably just because of that. She's more inviting looking. She looks like a nice mom, you know, nice mom of young kids. And I look like, you know, somebody who is miserable in their life. I'm not though. Um, so I haven't really skipped a beat though, because I have my people, like I can listen to the podcasts. I am constantly using messenger and texts and things like that. I'm talking to people all day long. So it's like nothing really changed, even though I'm wearing a mask and like, social distancing and staying away from everyone and you know i worked through this whole thing and our hospital never closed um, due to covid we were deemed essential immediately and we never closed and it was scary at times but um being able to to be there and and get support from my staff was crazy because i was freaking out a lot and my wife and then my medical director and um, my assistant manager at the hospital like Pulled me aside and were like, Are you okay? You don't seem like you're doing them. Like, yeah, you don't understand. Like, this is happening. This is what I talk about in my educational talks. I talk to people about the animal markets in China all the time. I've been doing it for years. Like I know how bad that, that is. And to, the fact that it's coming true is like a freaking nightmare for me. I'm not, I'm not just learning about what they do to pangolins. Like that's stuff that I am am intimately familiar with. So it was just kind of crazy and eye-opening. And it was tough at first, but. You know, at the same time, since that immediate uh, freak out about, oh, boy, I'm not going to China into, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. How bad is this going to get to now things getting a little more normal, normalized? Um, I really haven't skipped a beat besides that one blip in the radar. And um, it's because of the people. So, like, it's tough, man. Taking care of 180 animals is tough, no matter what kind of animals they are. If they're betta fish, it's tough. And, um, the people are what keep me going because when I have something really cool happen, I'm taking pictures on my phone and sending it to my friends and, and sharing that with them. And they're doing the same thing and picking me up with conversation when I'm down or whatever. So anyway, come for the animals, stay for the people.
1: Absolutely. When, when you're down, someone else is pumped about a species. So listen to them talk and they'll right. usually get you pumped, which is right. great. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I'm the, I'm the king of extending conversations yep, for way too long. We already we already started the outro. So, uh, <laughs> portcitypet.com, poor pythons, Uh you know where to find me if you made it this far. Uh, links are down below. Um Anthony, thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you so much for having me. Great pleasure. All right, guys, I will catch you next week.
0: Deuces.